We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. It's Easter weekend, and everything else that's happening in your life right now is of no consequence whatsoever compared to the most important event that ever happened in the course of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thanks so much for listening into the show. Well, like I said in the introduction, this is Easter weekend, and I would be remiss to talk about anything other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, don't you get sick of it every day on radio shows like this, podcasts like the one that I do every day, The Rebellion and whatnot, you hear all of the negative. I'm I'm as guilty of it as anyone else. We talk about the negatives, the economy, We talk about viruses, COVID-19. We talk about mask mandates and how unfair they are. We talk about losing our freedom, our religious freedom, our economic freedom, our personal liberties. We talk about a broken government system. We talk about all of these negatives. We talk about war and famine and disease. We talk about Ukraine and Russia and China. We talk about the corruption of the human soul, of the human mind. What I have said over and over again on this show, sin, that we are all broken, and that as G.K. Chesterton said, if you want to find any proof, any hard proof of Christian theology, look no further than the daily news, and you'll see evidence of original sin, that all of us are broken. There is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that the human heart is dark and corrupted. We see it every day. We see it in Black Lives Matter and the riots and the burning down of Kenosha. We see it in critical race theory and the ginning up of hatred of one race toward another, of, of blaming people just because of the way they look for all that ails you. We see it in the social justice warriors movement, where they define justice as they think it should be defined rather than defining justice by some standard that's outside of themselves, using a measuring rod outside of those things being measured. We see it in the snowflake rebellion and this constant whining that you offended me, you hurt my feelings, this selfish narcissism that's endemic across our land. We see it in the LGBTQIA movement and the subjective definitions of what it means to be a human being, that we have actually come to the point as a culture and as a country where we define ourselves by our desires, that we don't think we're anything more than our libido, that if you want to do it, that's who you are. And the only thing that should restrain you from doing so is the consent of another human being. I mean, these are the broken ideas that we live with on a daily basis. 
And we know, all of us know, every single one of you that's listening to me right now knows that something is desperately wrong and that it needs to be fixed. That's why you listen to this show. That's why you're intrigued by the conversation. You may disagree with some of the things I've said. You may disagree with what I say today with regard to Christianity and the core of the Christian faith, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact, the historical fact that Jesus rose from the grave and proved his claims to be accurate, honest, and true when he said that he was God, which he did repeatedly. Don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus didn't claim to be God. He claimed to be God in his very statement when he said before the Pharisees that he is the great I am. When he said, I am, he was referring to the way God himself defined himself to Moses. When he said, I am, not I was or I will be, but I am, meaning that he is the eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign God. And as C.S. Lewis said, anybody who makes such claims, which Jesus did, is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He's either a liar, a great deceiver who has duped millions of people for the last 2,000 years with this grand deception, or he's a lunatic. He's a crazy man because people who walk around the streets today claiming to be God, claiming to be Jesus, we rightly label them as nuts. Or there's a third possibility here. Jesus was actually telling the truth. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Well, What proves Jesus was telling the truth? The resurrection. Or as my friend Abdu Murray says, you know, I have a tendency to believe guys that actually rise from the grave. If somebody has risen from the dead, I'm going to have a tendency to want to listen to what they say. So today's topic, Easter weekend, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to share with you, essentially for the rest of the show, some quotes from the great Christian thinkers of the centuries. I don't need to reinvent the wheel here. I don't need to say much new because it's already been said. And that's what we're going to talk about in today's show. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. Like I said, I want to talk about something positive from here on out. I want to talk about all the garbage. We hear enough of that. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to share with you a couple passages from Scripture, and then I'm going to likewise share with you some of the great quotes and thoughts of Christian scholars, theologians, through the centuries. Some of them that were atheists at one time and came to faith and have shared their journey, like Chesterton and Lewis, uh, Lee Strobel, another one, a contemporary scholar that you should be reading. But I'd like to start with the actual historical record as it is recorded in Scripture, in the Gospels. The Apostle John records in his Gospel the following, Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. That's a direct quote. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Now, what is that referring to? It's referring to Easter morning when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that's the way it's described. And remember that Mary Magdalene was a woman out of which Jesus cast several demons. This was a very broken human being who had been completely transformed and redeemed by the power of Christ. That's her story. 
Now, she was one of the first two to see the risen Christ. She ran to the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord, quote unquote. That is described to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 18. Pretty clear and straightforward, right? I have seen the Lord. She told the disciples that. Now, a few paragraphs later in the Gospel of John, St. John tells us this, that Jesus, quote, appeared to the ten, ten without Thomas. Apparently, Thomas wasn't there for some reason when Jesus first made himself known to the disciples. He appeared to the ten as they were reclining in a room. You remember that story. Jesus actually became visible. He was right there among them. They thought he was a ghost, and he said, relax, relax, I'm not. This is the Piper paraphrase, obviously. And he actually had a discussion, the risen Christ, with 10 of the disciples. Now, remember that there were only 11 left because Judas uh, committed suicide as the result of his treason, uh, the fact that he had betrayed Christ. Okay, so we have two recorded episodes. One, Mary Magdalene runs to the disciples and said, I have seen the Lord. And then Jesus himself is recorded as appearing to the 10 And why only 10? Thomas wasn't there. And then we are told just a few sentences later in the Gospel of John, as well as at the tail end of the Gospel of Mark, that a week later, Jesus appeared to the 11 with Thomas. And that's when we hear the story of doubting Thomas, where he actually said, my Lord and my God, because he saw the wounds in Jesus's hands, his feet, and his side. But that's not the end of it. Sometimes we forget that Jesus didn't just appear to the two Marys, and then to the ten, and then to the eleven, including Thomas. St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, his epistle to the church in Corinth, that Jesus appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. That's a direct quote. 500. 500 brothers and sisters at one time. So we have these multiple appearances here on earth, after the resurrection, and before the ascension. And that's what we're celebrating on Easter weekend. We're not celebrating a myth. We're, we're, we're celebrating an historical fact. We are celebrating the very core of Christianity. Paul himself says to the Corinthians again in his first epistle, his first letter to the church at Corinth, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's what Paul says. If Christ isn't raised, then we're preaching in vain. If Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Pretty straightforward, right? Again, the biblical claims for the resurrection are irrefutable. It's not a myth. It's not just metaphor. The Gospels, as well as the entire New Testament, they make it very clear that the resurrection is a historical fact that must be believed if you're going to claim Christianity and everything therein. You know, John MacArthur says this, 
The truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of the gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all Christianity turns, and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. That's John MacArthur. And he's a contemporary scholar, obviously. He's a preacher out on the West Coast. Well, John Calvin, you know him, Calvinism, okay, part of the Reformed theology uh, that's uh, the heart and soul of the Protestant movement. John Calvin said this, let us consider this settled, that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final what? Resurrection. And then we have Adrian Rogers. Adrian Rogers says this, The resurrection is not merely important to the historic Christian faith. Without it, there would be no Christianity. It is the singular doctrine that elevates Christianity above all other religions. That's Adrian Rogers. And then we have Erling Olson. Here's his quote. Whoever reads the New Testament seriously or gives thought to the impact which the apostles made upon their generation must must acknowledge, excuse me, must acknowledge that one outstanding historic event alone spurred that small band of 11 ordinary men to an amazing task of evangelization in their generation, defying every obstacle, loss of home, persecution, even death itself. They evidenced the supreme relevance in their ministry of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. D.L. Moody said this, The resurrection is the keystone of the ark on which our faith is supported. If Christ has not risen, we must impeach all those witnesses for lying. If Christ has not risen, we have no proof that the crucifixion of Jesus differed from that of the two thieves who suffered with him. If Christ has not risen, it is impossible to believe the atoning death was accepted. And then Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel, who is a current scholar, who was an atheist writing for the Chicago Tribune, I think it was, or was it the Sun-Times? I can't remember. One of the two major Chicago newspapers. Lee Strobel, an atheist, came to faith, and then he said this, In short, I didn't become a Christian because God promised it would have an, uh, that I would have even happier life than I had had as an atheist. He never promised any such thing. Indeed, following him would inevitably bring demotions in the eyes of the world upon me. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by doing what? Rising from the dead. That meant following him was the most rational and logical step that I could possibly take. Close quote, Lee Strobel. Here's another quote. Because of the empty tomb, we have peace. Because of his resurrection, we can have peace during even the most troubling of times because we know he's in control. I mean, a guy that rises from the grave is in control of all that happens in this world. That's Paul Chappell. G.K. Chesterton had this to say in his book, Everlasting Man, about the resurrection. He said, On the third day the friends of Christ, coming at daybreak to the place, found the grave empty, and the stone rolled away. In varying ways they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. 
what they were looking at was the first day of new creation. And the gardener God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but of dawn. Again, great quote with a lot of depth from G.K. Chesterton, the Prince of Paradox. And then we have Charles Spurgeon. Listen to this one. We Christians do not believe that Jesus Christ was the only one that ever rose from the dead. We believe that every deathbed is a resurrection, that from every grave the stone is rolled away. Emmanuel, God with us, in our nature, in our sorrow, in our life work, in our punishment, in our grave, God is with us, and now he's with us, or rather we with him in the resurrection, ascension, triumph, and the second advent, splendor. And then Spurgeon goes on and says this, Come see the place where the Lord lay with joy and gladness. He does not lie there now. Weep when ye see the tomb of Christ, but rejoice because it is empty. Thy sin slew him, but his divinity raised him up. Thy guilt hath murdered him, but his righteousness hath restored him. Oh, he hath burst the bounds of death. He hath ungirt the tomb and hath come out. More than conqueror, crushing death beneath his feet. Rejoice, O Christian, for he is not there. He is risen. Against that, again, that's Charles Spurgeon. You have this quote, a great hymn from Charles Wesley. Christ the Lord is risen today. Sons of men and angels say, raise your joys and triumphs high. Sing ye heavens and earth reply. That's Charles Wesley. And then we have this quote from uh, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, This resurrection of Christ is the most joyful event that ever came to pass, because hereby Christ said it was finished. And by the resurrection of Christ, the head of the church in that great event enters on the procession of eternal life. Weeping had continued for the night, but now joy cometh in the morning. This is the day of his reigning. This was worthy to be commemorated with the greatest joy. Charles, excuse me, Jonathan Edwards. N.T. Wright, a contemporary scholar, says this, the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you are now invited to belong to it. Again, based on the resurrection. Martin Luther said this, in the bonds of death he lay, who for our offenses was slain. But the Lord is risen today. Christ has brought us life again. Wherefore, let us all rejoice. Sing aloud with cheerful voice. Hallelujah. That's Martin Luther. Charles Swindoll, a contemporary preacher and scholar. The devil, darkness and death, may swagger and boast. The pangs of life will sting for a while longer. But don't worry. The forces of evil are breathing their last. Not to worry. He is risen. And then we have this again from Charles Swindoll. The benefits of the resurrection are innumerable. To list a few, our illnesses don't seem nearly so final. Our fears fade and lose their grip. Our grief over those who have gone on is diminished. Our desires to press on in spite of the obstacles is rejuvenated. Our identity as Christians is strengthened as we stand in the lengthening shadows of saints down through the centuries who have always answered back in loud voice, He is risen. 
He is risen indeed. Charles Swindoll. We have this from Basil Hume. The great gift of Easter is hope. Christian hope which makes us have that confidence in, in God, in his ultimate triumph, and in his goodness and love, which nothing can shake. That's Easter. That's the resurrection. Paul tells us in Romans, his epistle to the church of Rome, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Martin Luther again, O Lord, our Lord, has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf of springtime. Luther is referring to the evidence of resurrection, of new life, of death and being reborn, that God actually seeded into creation, into natural law, so we could see it happening before our very eyes. And kind of in the same vein, C.S. Lewis chimes in and says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe in that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. One more time on that. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Christianity, the resurrection, the facts, the historical veracity of the Christian faith gives illumination to the rest of life, to the rest of our existence. And without it, you're walking in the dark. Romans again from Paul Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Again, this is all predicated on the resurrection because that's the first sentence in this paragraph that Paul just wrote to the church of Rome. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That's a reference to the resurrection. Here's a great poem. This is a poem that's written by John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The guy that said, there are true things, two truths in life. Perhaps only two truths that I know. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. It's a poem titled, The Resurrection and the Life. I am, saith Christ, our glorious head. May we attention give. The resurrection of the dead, the life of all that live. By faith in me, the soul receives new life through, though dead before. And he that in my name believes shall live to die no more. The sinner sleeping in his grave shall at my voice awake, and when I once begin to save my work, I ne'er forsake. Fulfill thy promise, gracious Lord, on us assembled here. Put forth thy spirit with thy word, and cause the dead to hear. Preserve the power of faith alive in those who love thy name, for sin and Satan daily strive to quench the sacred flame. Thy power and mercy first prevailed from death, to set us free, and often since our life had failed, if not renewed by thee. To thee we look, to thee we bow, to thee for help we call. Our life and resurrection, thou, our hope, our joy, our all. That's John Newton. I want to close with this 
passage from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, and this is from the Chronicles of Narnia. And remember, for those who haven't read the Chronicles recently, this is a series of children's books with Aslan as the Christ figure. The great lion Aslan is the Christ figure in these books. So keep that in mind. As I read to you a passage out of The Last Battle, it's the last in the seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia, where Narnia, the temporal world, is dying away. It's dissolving. It's being rolled up like a scroll. And Aslan is watching with the Narnian children. As this happens, not only the Narnian children, but a couple other of the redeemed Narnian beasts, talking horses and whatnot. Here's the description at the end of ages that you find in the Chronicles of Narnia. The dragons and the giant lizards now had Narnia to themselves. They went to and fro, tearing it up, and the whole country became bare. And soon they found that they were looking at a world that looked as if it was nothing but a bare rock. You could hardly believe that anything had ever lived there. But then the monsters themselves grew old, and they laid down and died too. And for a long time, everything was still. At last, at last, something white came moving toward them from the eastern end of the world. A widespread noise broke the silence, first a murmur, and then a rumble, and then a roar. And Aslan said, Now make an end. Shut the door. And they had seen strange things enough through that doorway, but it was stranger than any of them to look around and find themselves in warm daylight. The blue sky above them, flowers at their feet, and the laughter in Aslan's eyes. He turned swiftly around, and he crouched lower and shot away like a golden arrow. Come further in and come further up, he shouted over his shoulder. And so night falls on Narnia. And they walked away from that door. As they went, they talked to one another about old wars and old peace and all the glories of Narnia. But it was the unicorn, Jewel, who said it best as he stamped his feet and neighed and cried out, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it until now. And the reason why I loved old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. But come further up and come further in, shouted Jewel. And then Aslan says this. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. This for them was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And then this from Revelation as I close. And then he placed his right hand on me and he said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold... I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's Jesus. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Happy Easter, and long live the true King.